You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, and welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. Our podcast is a series of conversations with industry leaders around the future of financial advice. Our session today is going to be a bit of a departure. As we've been reading in the industry press, and I'm finding in almost every business conversation, there's a clear trend toward the Unified Managed Household, or UMH. Today, I'm speaking with uh, a true pioneer on this subject, my good friend, Len Reinhardt. Len was among the very first in our industry to talk about separately managed accounts, managed money, an advisory approach. And actually, going back uh, almost 20 years, more than 20 years, he started talking about UMH, which I'm sure he'll share with you. So, Len, thanks for joining us today on Wealth Tech on Deck. It's great to have you uh, on board and looking forward to our conversation. It's great to be here with you, Jack. It's exciting times. So my, a little bit of my background, I can use myself as an example. I'm born in 1955, so that makes me sort of dead middle set of the baby boomers. So, I'm a baby boomer um, and living the trials and tribulations of a baby boomer. Uh, the generation that saw defined benefit plans go away and retirement uh, being thrust on the back of the actual baby boomer through IRAs and 401ks. So the industry has changed dramatically since I got into it in 1978. I spent 18 years at the wirehouses, starting with E.F. Hutton, and it kept getting merged. And uh, my final years were at Smith Barney. And those were 18 great years. But what I saw there was a transition from traditional stock brokerage business. And I found fascinating the other day, I heard that Merrill Lynch was going to stop the process of cold calling for their brokers. And, And when I got into business, I did not come in as a broker. I came in as an analyst. But there there was rooms of young brokers who were given lists of thousands of names and numbers, and they were calling with the deal of the day. And the brokers that made it were the ones who could close deals on a daily basis on on smiling and dialing. Uh, On the other hand, I was in the consulting area of EF Hutton, and we were at the time consulting to large defined benefit plans. And so my function was really talking about how to put the asset allocation and the money managers together to meet the future liabilities of of the uh, defined benefit plan, whatever the corporation or state plan was. Uh, So I had a little bit different view. Over time, we transitioned the concept of managed money and asset allocation and designing a strategy into a retail service, which became the wrap fee industry or the managed money industry. We got that started out at $25,000 account, professionally managed. Um, And that business started to grow, but we were inside a big brokerage firm where we didn't get much space. And it was really a group of a handful of, you said, uh, Jack Pioneers, uh, advisors who bought into what we were doing. And they were typically younger advisors that were saying, you know, why would any, you know, uh, investor listen to a 25-year-old kid about how to invest their money? But what we were doing with managed money, we were doing something unusual. We were listening to the client first and talking to them about how much risk they wanted to take and what were their goals and aspirations. Then we would recommend a, uh, a money manager and or involved in mutual funds and ETFs. 
So we'd put a strategy together that would hopefully meet uh, their risk requirements, meaning they could sleep at night with the volatility in the markets. And, and it was certainly defined as at that time as the uh, uh, risk was defined by volatility in the industry. So the business grew nicely. We started to grow rapidly. I eventually became in charge of that business. And it was funny, the, the rest of the firm would look at us and say, wow, you're doing all this business right now. We, we got up to $100 billion in assets and there's no lawsuits. How do you do it? And so we were sort of a mystery inside of a brokerage firm. Around 1996, uh, we were part of Smith Barney and I got the bug to go out and try to start a new business with a couple of friends, Jim Seifert. Uh, who had worked with me for many years and said, could we do this on our own? Could we build what the industry now knows as a TAMP, a turnkey asset management provider, and provide similar types of services that we're doing in the in the brokerage industry, do it for independent advisors, both stockbrokers and, and RIAs? And we did that. And we grew that business nicely. And it was an exciting period of time. Uh, for us and the industry, there were a lot of things changing. All of a sudden, uh, the brokers were competing with CPAs, not just other brokers. So the industry was changing rapidly. We developed a successful uh, niche, which was managing after-tax money. Len, as you're describing this, if you could maybe provide some context. When you started, the, or at least a part of the start of the, the Hutton um, simply managed account business, advisory business, Talk a little bit about who else then followed, because I know other firms started followed your lead there. And then uh, as you talk about what you did at Lockwood, again, you were a real innovator in that regard, as I recall. Maybe talk a little bit about sort of how you started, the ideas behind you, which you've described. But then I'd like to know, when did the other big players start to catch on that this was important? Because it became a big wave, a big trend, as I recall, back in the back in the day. One of the important things we learned as we were growing the business, you know, we started Yale Hutton. It was the original home of managed money. But as time went on, the competition saw the success. As I was saying, all of a sudden, we were doing big numbers, big revenue numbers, big asset numbers without lawsuits and without client complaints. And the rest of the industry started to see that and join in. And at the time, I hated it. I thought, this is horrible. We have a lead and everybody's copying us and saying, you know, just, we're doing it just like they do it. But that was actually the best thing that happened to us. It's like having all the fast food restaurants on the same, you know, strip of road. At first, it seems like competition, but the reality is everyone's business grows. And it was in that period of time in the 80s when everybody was jumping on the managed account bandwagon that if you were going to be in the brokerage business, you had to have a fee-based business also, uh, the business just exploded. So yeah, we had a leadership position. And I think today Morgan Stanley is still the largest managed money producer, you know, which are the roots of EF Hutton. So the lead position helps, always helps. When we moved on to Lockwood and we started, you know, the business I was talking about, our own business, we specialized in after-tax management, which wasn't being done at the time. Again, sort of taking what's the next step, and we believe that was the next step. And a similar thing happened. We were out there at first, the only ones championing this concept of doing it after tax and competing with mutual funds because we could do it for larger investors. We could do it better than in a mutual fund on an after-tax basis. 
And all of a sudden we started to grow. In a short period of time, we went from zero to 10 billion in assets. And with that came the competition. Other TAMPs were starting to get in that business. And to our benefit, then some of the big banks said, you know, we really need to be in this business. We need to be in the separately managed account business. We need to be in the after-tax business of managing money. And basically, we ended up uh, selling our firm to the Bank of New York, Mellon. There was a competition for the business. And that was a nice uh, financial benefit for myself and the other employees of of Lockwood. Um, And then I spent five years uh, working with the Bank of New York, Mellon, and growing that business and integrating it with Pershing. Uh, And it still exists today. So I've really uh, seen a lot in this business. You know, some of the biggest transition points were the fact that the baby boomers, uh, their parents had defined benefit plans. My father's uh, 95 years old, and he's still the beneficiary of an AT&T defined benefit plan. even pays his phone bill and all his medical expenses. But all of a sudden, the baby boomers lost that. I I have a a remnant of a defined benefit plan for about a year or two before they ended it. It's about enough that pays for my uh, lunches when I golf. Uh, That's about it. So we had to do it on our own. And and for the past 12 years, I haven't gotten a W-2 in 12 years after I left the bank in New York. I started investing in, in, in yeah, my own money as well as uh, doing some minor private equity type and venture capital type investing. And what the big thing that really changes when you move to the distribution side of accumulation is the horse race really disappears. It had disappeared and managed money uh, to a large extent already. But once you approach retirement, you say, this is, you know, the majority of the money I'm going to have. And now you move into distribution phase. The definition of risk radically changes from volatility to running out of money and winning the horse race and having the fastest, uh, you know, uh, the fastest car, the fastest horse and the best performance becomes very much secondary to where I am I in my plan. And so this I think has really brought on the concept of integrating financial planning more into the concept of managed money, as well as uh, the entire financial services industry. And if you look at financial planning, which was growing and has been around for 30 years, more 40 years, originally financial planning was designed to sell high-end estate insurance plans. Uh, These were incredibly profitable plans for the salesman of the these different estate plan packages. So financial planning focused on that piece of it. At the same time, you had managed money growing and on the investment side, and you had traditional stockbrokers talking about investing, but the two never really lined up. And Jack, you said in your introduction, you know, I've been talking about this for over 20 years in in 2000, I wrote a paper called Managed Account Odyssey 2010. I was at Lockwood that time, and I was talking about you know, the evolution of where this business is going and the merger of financial planning uh, and investing to take it straight through and to make sure clients don't run out of money and keep adjusting the plan to do this. And there were a handful of people, Dave Loper being one of them, who saw this same vision. And, and, and Dave Loper, as myself, grew up in the defined benefit consulting business. 
So he was used to the concept of how do you fund a future liability? And that's what we're really talking about for anybody that's approaching retirement or in retirement, which are the baby boomers where the majority of money still is, is how do you fund their future liabilities? And even back in 2000, I could see this is what we needed to do. But the analogy I used at the time was everybody's building railroads, but unfortunately, we're all using different size tracks. You mentioned uh, Dave Loper, who uh, I think is an important figure in this uh, saga, if you will. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about his background? He, he was the guy that created uh, Wealthcare and Envision, uh, which is used at Wells Fargo. I, th- I think it plays an important role, but it might be useful for our audience to understand uh, who Dave is and, and the role he played. Yeah, Dave Loper um, is, a, I believe, a mathematical genius. And as I mentioned, he grew up uh, working with large defined benefit um, plans as I did. And where the goal is really different, you the actuaries determine a future liability that the corporation or, or plan has, and you have to build a funding strategy and an asset allocation strategy and return strategy to meet that future liability. And while he was at Weep First Securities, uh, the CEO at the time, uh, an individual named Danny Ludeman, was a pioneer in the fact that he thought Every client of Wheat First Securities should have a financial plan before they started investing. And he asked Dave to create the software package to do that. And so he created the Envision program, which is basically what is still used at Wells Fargo. And it's a, it was creative and one of a, uh, one of a type kind of a product in that it did connect investing to financial planning. And it was designed to do that rather than sell insurance. So this was a a big breakthrough. Wealthcare, another company I'm involved with, um, we bought it from Dave Loper um, and still use that software. Uh, And every client of Wealthcare goes through that process of financial planning and then building a strategy, investment strategy that will meet that plan. So Dave was one of the critical people in the evolution of this business and this concept of connecting financial planning to investing. You raised the topic of, of uh, Unified Spanish Household or UMH, and I love your, your analogy, even though I lived through it. I had never really thought about the fact that planning really needed to connect to investing. I've always thought that's the right thing to do, but you were early on, as you always are, uh, in terms of determining how, how does that come together. And what we're seeing now in the marketplace, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, is as we move toward this unified managed household, our, our experience now is virtually every large firm is doing some, is moving in that direction for sure. Many are very busily working on it and finding out the complexity just inherent in putting all this stuff together. It's not just the planning and investing, but you have to consider taxes you've talked about. You've got to consider costs. You've got to consider risk. Increasing, especially as you're determining income stream, you got to consider Social Security. Now you put all that together is sort of the modern day UMH. I think when you and I were talking about it 20 or more years ago, it was basically what you're describing as planning, moving to investing. But uh, love to hear your thoughts on how that evolution took place in real time. You know when it started, when you started talking about it with that paper you mentioned earlier, and then where you see it going. In other words, where's the world? headed toward around those whole concept of unified managed household. Okay. To go back, you know, the unified managed household and in, in 2000, what 
you know, I was envisioning and was how, you know, how do you bring this process together and get people working on the same tracks? And I'm not a, a technology person, so I was no expert on that. But the problem was there were no APIs as we consider today to do this. So every firm, including my own Lockwood, was developing this on their own and trying to develop all the components to do that, which is very complex and time-consuming and expensive. So what has started to happen and really accelerated in the past six or seven years is the ability to interconnect many of these processes together with APIs so that you don't have to build everything on your own. And that's been the biggest breakthrough. And I, I, can, I think that will continue in the future and even become easier and easier. The end goal of the Unified Managed Household is to take all the client's assets, their goals and aspirations, you know, meaning what are they trying to accomplish with their life and put them together. And I think the further you take this, the better so that if somebody's into environmental issues, they can blend that into their portfolio and see and measure the outcome of investing that way. If there's certain goals, uh, a handicapped child, for instance, and what you have to fund for that, how do you do that and how do you make sure they are taken care of forever? These are all pieces of the goals and aspirations that have to be measured and then you're looking at the probability. The way to correctly do this is the looking at the probability of success, you know, and that will change over times because life changes. Things happen. People get sick. People lose jobs. They get big bonuses. All those things happen, and this plan has to be constantly adjusted. What happens when you do this properly is the actual investing piece the actual securities, mutual funds, all the stuff that was, you know, 40 years ago was the selling point almost becomes secondary because the conversation with the client for something as simple as, okay, we want to remodel our kitchen and spend $50,000. What does that do to our probability of success of hitting all of our other goals in our process? So that every sort of big decision can be poured into this process and evaluated of how, what the impact is in the long run. You know, we all do things. I'm, I'm a big person with toys, you know, as far as, uh, you know, ATVs, boats, things like that. I, I have a collection of these things and each one, and it might be a second home, anything you do like that, the toys of life, which are fun, they have a tail on them. And the tale is you have to maintain them and you have to upgrade them. And so you have to look at all these decisions and that's where the unified managed household, I think really evolves into. And it starts with the baby boomers because we're the ones facing the retirement, but the baby boomers, kids, the millennials I've seen are much more outcome oriented than they are horse race oriented. Uh, millennials like to fund a lifestyle. And all the research I've seen is the lifestyle is more important to them than the job. And that's an interesting change in philosophy, I think, between the two. But I think the unified manager household can address both of those. 
because with the baby boomer, it's about, okay, how much money have you saved? Now, what do we have to do spending wise to make sure you do not run out of money over time? And for the millennial, it's what's the lifestyle you want? This is how much money it's going to take to give you that. So you have to figure out how to accumulate that much money to get there. So this sort of lifestyle approach is someone that can be used for all investors. It's not simply for retirees. Uh, there's two aspects of it. There's the accumulation and decumulation pieces of it, but it's not that different. And then blended into all of that, every one of these decisions, these life decisions comes with it. it there's taxes and fees involved. And all that has to be uh, orchestrated and brought into this. Social Security, when to take it. You know, how much is that going to be? What, how big a piece of that is your funding over your li uh, lifetime horizon? So the Unified Managed Household is evolving into something that I think will be sort of a, a, a guidepost and merges many of the things that were handled separately. Part of that is taxes, as we talked about, the single biggest hurdle in investing. Traditionally, the brokerage industry has shied away from ever giving tax advice. But the unified managed household has to give guidance on taxes. Maybe not the same level, certainly, of a CPA, but they need to have that input. And there needs to be tax guidance on how to decumulate your money, which money needs to take first, how to build tax lots how to tax loss harvest, all these processes that go on that can be very complex and take hours of, of somebody on a spreadsheet trying to figure it out. There's now technology that can do that in seconds. And so it's the combination of all these things and then keep building links into it. It's almost like an evolving net worth statement of your goals and aspirations and your funding probability is where I think this, this really leads us to. So, Len, I, I know that uh, as the story has unfolded, I really appreciate your sharing with our audience. It, uh, I happen to live a good part of it, actually pretty much all of it. Certainly, you were not only living it, but you were leading it. And I know as you sold Lockwood and you were looking for the next chapter, I know you're a relatively conservative investor, but uh, you also set aside some money to to invest in, in uh, those areas that you knew a lot about and also you saw to be the future, specifically leading toward, if you'd be uh, kind enough to share with our audience, what moved you to do that? Why'd you do it? Maybe a little bit about what you invested in and why you invested in it. So maybe share that if you would with our, our audience. Yeah. When I um, got out of the W2 world 12 years ago, you have to sit down and basically do what I tell every investor to do is, is look at what my lifestyle is and what I'm trying to accomplish. And and create that sort of future liability for myself. And I had to put assets away to make sure I could fund that. And I did that. Basically, I'm not a big believer in bonds. You know, so I, I spent a lot of time and, and built a portfolio of dividend growth port, uh, portfolio, which has done very well for me. Some of it managed, some not managed. Um, I use my IRA more as my uh, uh, growth component where I put my higher tech stuff in there, the FANG stocks, things like that. So that's, you know, relatively conservative investing. I don't leverage it. Um, I don't trade it. I very seldom ever trade, a, you know, try to take a position on a short-term position. I just, over the years, haven't seen that work. But then when I was done then with that, I, you also have to uh, be mentally stimulated. And, and one thing, the, the most exciting period of time in my career 
was when I left and, and created Lockwood. The excitement and adrenaline rush you get by having to hit payroll every two weeks and growing a business and watching it grow and watch it become value was uh, the time when the weekend came, you were disappointed when it was Friday. Most people look forward to Fridays. I remember for that period of time, every Friday I was disappointed. Uh, I wanted to keep working. It was just so exciting. So I took some money then after I came up with my plan of how to fund our lifestyle. I said, how can I go out and look at some other businesses where I might be able to help them, but also become the future. And I invested in in a, in a number of them. What I found was uh, I invested in a couple that uh, I didn't have expertise in and I didn't find that rewarding. But then I invested in some that, that were in our space. Uh, one of them, Wheelhouse uh, Analytics, was one that we sold to InvestNet. Uh, one of the very first ones was LifeYield, where I could see the vision of what you, where you were taking the software. And I thought that was absolutely critical because the businesses I had traditionally been involved in were asset accumulation businesses. You built things to accumulate assets and you got paid uh, a fee basis on those assets. And what you were doing was creating software that any asset-based business could use to deliver the unified managed household and do it in a highly technical and efficient manager uh, manner uh, with proven formulas that you could show the enhancement in total assets for the clients year over year by taking a unified approach to management of the assets. So I invested there. I also invested in, as I mentioned, Dave Loper before, we ended up, uh, myself and a private equity firm, buying Wealthcare. Um, and we've been growing that business. We bought it. We had about $400 million in assets. It was using the Envision software to grow it. And we just crossed $4 billion. So it, it's growing there rapidly. And this has been a very exciting period of, of time for me as these businesses uh, grow and develop and eventually take the next step, either being sold or, or going public. So it's an exciting period of time. I've really enjoyed it. I'm always on the lookout for something, what's sort of the next big thing. The next big thing is making more uh, uh, inputs into the lifestyle management of things into the unified managed household. With a 95-year-old father and my mother-in-law lived in 96, uh, we, we are the, you know, the baby boomers are also the sandwich generation. I have six grandkids and I also have a parent that's alive who at times needs help and, and funding that and figuring that out. All those things really have to be, those types of things have to be put into uh, the unified managed household over time. It's not there yet, but I think the, the hardest part is over. Um, as far as being with the APIs, being able to hook all these things together. And now I, I look forward to these new pieces, these components that can fit into this to really fine tune that process. That's great, Len. Um, great context around this evolution, but in your role in it, but also uh, where you see it headed. So as we look to wrap things up, I'd just like to two last questions. First is, uh, Maybe three highlights, three takeaways you'd like to share with our audience. So uh, let's start with that one. Uh, You've covered a lot of ground, both as a history, but also in terms of the importance and role that that managed money has played and how it's evolved and continues to evolve. So maybe three takeaways for our audience, uh, maybe sort of summary of, of the key things to be on the lookout for. 
Well, I think the, the, you know, the things that have evolved and take the most change and why does it take so long in this industry? Okay. The first change in managed money was the biggest change was moving from a transaction-based system to a fee-based business. And I think the industry has done that. It took longer than we might've liked or might've thought it would take, but it's done it. The second is the redefinition of risk. A lot of what I've been talking about is uh, traditional investments have been sold by how much return they could produce and volatility. And yes, that's a tool in looking at investments, but the real risk for an investor is running out of money and not having enough money to accomplish their goals and attributions. And that that's a, a double-edged sword, meaning sometimes you can't solve it by investing. It has to be solved by saving, by cutting back expenses, by getting rid of that third country club, if that's the case. You know, those types of tough decisions have to be made to make sure the client's on the right path to doing it. So, I mean, those are things that have to happen, I think. Yeah. And then the third one is really the impact of taxes. Um, We have a new administration right now. They're talking about raising taxes. I think that's going to raise the awareness of the concept of taxes and impact on everybody's investments. And I think uh, the timing is good for that. Do I want to see taxes raised? No. But I think the timing is good to make everybody think taxes. It's impossible to put this unified managed household together without a really good understanding of taxes and what the decisions mean to you on an after-tax basis. So that's got to be something that, that's driven by the advisor. So, um, you know, we're really talking about the biggest one thing that's changing is the way advisors work with their clients. You know, we have over this 40-year time period transitioned from a transaction horse race sort of sale to one of a lifestyle management change. And the lead investing becomes secondary in that process. And that's a big, major shift. And at the time this was going on over the 40 years, and I'd, I'd be get frustrated with the timing of things, it really isn't until later when I can look back and say, why was this so hard to do? And the biggest thing I see is because we were changing, not we were changing the way advisors do business. We're changing the way these big financial services firms do business. And that's like, you know, the classic, how do you, you know, turn a, an aircraft carrier around in the ocean? It takes a long time. The momentum pushes the thing in the direction it was going. And it takes a very long time to turn a ship like that. But the business is turning. And I think right now, um, the unified managed household is in the lead position of where the business wants to be. It's not in the lead position of where it is today, but it is in the lead position of where the business wants to be. And I look forward to, you know, the next 10 years of incredible amount of uh, really intriguing and enhanced additions to this process to really improve this lifestyle management process. Well, Len, this has been uh, really terrific. And uh, if I may summarize what you covered, you covered the past 40 years of an evolution that started in a stock and bond, you know, you were given a list to cold call if you were a broker back then to now a lifestyle management. And it's all about outcome. 
early on, we thought outcome was going to come from beating the market. We've come to learn over time that doesn't happen so easily or rarely, if ever. And now it's really about how do you manage cost, risk, and tax in a way that pr- provides for not only greater accumulation, but greater income. So thanks for that uh, history lesson. Thanks for the leadership you displayed throughout. Let me uh, close with one last question, if I could. What do you do outside of your uh, day-to-day job? I know you're largely retired, but you pay close attention to the markets and the businesses that you're involved with. What do you do there for fun or something you're passionate about? I know you got... Uh, six grandchildren. Every time I talk to you, you seem to have another one. But uh, what do you do uh, outside of your day-to-day work uh, that you particularly enjoy or are passionate about? Well, I think, you know, another piece of retirement or getting off a W-2 is finding what you don't like to do. So I I experimented with a lot of things. I started to play a lot of golf and realized I like golf, but I don't like it that much. You know, I don't like it enough to play it every day and then sit around lunch with a bunch of old guys and talk about what you just did. Yeah, I'm about a once a week golfer. Uh, One of the things I love to do, um, I've always loved racing. And so now uh, we have a a place up in the Pocono Mountains. We have an adult go-kart racetrack uh, where the carts go about, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour. And we do uh, family get-togethers. We do racing. I find you get the adrenaline rush. It sounds stupid. But when you're two inches off the ground and you're going 55 miles an hour, it seems really fast and it's exciting. It's fun. And the other thing I do is uh, I do some woodworking stuff. Uh, again, I like building things. Interesting. I have to say, I've, I've had the, the pleasure of being at your place in the Poconos and it was ATVs that you were into at the time. It's been a while, but uh, <laughs> uh, going airborne for a few seconds uh, at my age is uh it's a lot of fun. And I couldn't believe you and I were doing that, but there we were having a blast. So, and I also know you are quite passionate about your family, which is a, a lot of the people, a lot of your kids have wound up in our business, which is a, a great contribution, I have to say, because uh, they're all good folks. So, so it's it's been a blast to uh, catch up with you. I have the good fortune of speaking with Len on a semi-regular basis, and we uh, trade war stories, some of which are true, but uh, he's really been a, a true leader in our industry and a, and a very good friend of mine. So uh, glad I could share with you through our podcast, uh, his wisdom and uh, his experience and also his leadership. So Len, thanks so much for, for joining us today on Wealth Tech on Deck. It's my pleasure, Jack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by Life Yield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com. We'll be right back.